Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. The subject of this interview is arguably the single most controversial issue in British freshwater angling history. The release of 97 Zander into the Fenland drainage system via the Great Ouse Relief Channel on the 18th of March 1963. I use the term release as opposed to introduction because Zander had been present in Britain since the late 1870s, mainly in enclosed lakes owned by the Duke of Bedford at Warburn, from where the 1963 Fenland batch was obtained. Much has already been written and said on this particular subject. What makes this contribution different is that here we get a no-holds-barred account from the only person alive today with any first-hand knowledge of what actually took place. I'm sat in the dining room of John McAngus, who was a member of the then Great Ouse Riverboard Fishery Team involved in making this introduction. John actually joined the team shortly after the 97 fish went in. But the ramifications and discussions around the subject were still very much a hot topic at the time. So much so that he teamed up with the man who actually put the Xander into the water to produce a scientific paper looking at the uncontrolled and unstoppable spread of the species with a view to what could be done to at least mitigate the damage. As such, there will never be a better source of information on this still controversial subject, nor a more accurate attempt at setting the record straight once and for all. Today is the 7th of January 2011. It's been more than 47 years now since what you've described as that fated day. A very different world, no doubt, to that of the 1960s. Now the Environment Agency oversees such activities, which back then would have been dealt with by regional autonomous river boards, which in many ways were a law unto themselves, acting as both poacher and gamekeeper, by regularly flouting legitimate environmental concerns, then investigating any subsequent fallout for themselves. A good place to start might be to understand why there's never been a naturally occurring Zander population in Britain. On the mainland of Europe, it's thought that the species was deliberately spread as a food source by people from its natural stronghold well inland of the North Sea coast, long after the Ice Age water levels in the North Sea had risen sufficiently to isolate the British Isles. The key implication here being that we're not supposed to have Zander over here in the first place, and therefore they are an alien species. During the late 19th century, however, several unsuccessful attempts were made to bring them to this country, inevitably leading to a successful introduction, which as it would turn out would be ancestral to the notorious batch of 97 released in 1963. Would that be a fair summary of the build-up to the Fenland introduction? Well, you'd probably better, better ask a scientist that, that than me, but, because I'm, I'm not a scientist, but uh, ah belief and from my discussions with scientists and including people like Alwyn Wheeler who I have great respect for they believe that the the much wider variety of fish that appear in Europe didn't appear in the UK because we literally we were cut off by this um, by the sea and whereas in Europe fish spread through the river network over centuries in, in the UK actually we had quite a small number of species which occurred naturally that's the only sensible explanation I ever found for it. But um, certainly I believe that the pike perch, the walleye, be it the American walleye or the, the, the European zander, had never occurred naturally in the UK. Which reinforces the belief that they should never have been here. I think that's true. And I think at the time, most people, including Cliff Courtwell, who actually put the fish in, would have taken that point of view. 
Certainly uh, in the early 70s, we took that point of view. And Dr. Alwyn Wheeler was very, um, very clear that the fish should not have been introduced to the open water system. It's a, a subject of great debate, but um, uh, we believe the fish are now well established and you cannot go back once you've made a move, but there was a fateful move once you introduced fish from a, a lake like Woburn into the open water system. Nature takes its own course. Tell us then about the early attempts to bring the European Zander to the UK. Well, first of all, um, much of this information I got from Peter Frost, who's still alive uh, in his 90s now, but this has been fairly accurately researched in the 1950s. And what we discovered was that in the latter part of the 19th century, there were several unsuccessful attempts made to introduce Zander to the UK. But trying to move fish by sea proved really just too difficult until 1878. 25th of January 1878, 25 Zander, um, sorry, 24 Zander, averaging two pounds in weight, netted from Bothkamper Lake in Schleswig-Holstein in Germany and came to London by the steamship Capella. Difficult sea crossing, there was a cross-country journey by rail and horse and cart um, to the estates of the 9th Duke of Bedford at Woburn Abbey. Arriving late in the afternoon, were all but one were put into two lakes in the park. The other fish didn't survive the journey. Really, in a sense, little is known about the fish then until the 1940s, just after the war. Nobody much fished for them, and almost no records that we could find, although we do think there was a similar exercise carried out in 1910 to bring fish from Germany, to bring Xander from Germany, but no records were kept, so we were never able to really find out exactly what happened. I think that really brings us up to the period when the fish were first really noted in that time, and people like Peter Frost, uh, Richard Walker, members of the old Cart Catchers Club and the, um, the, perch, the early perch fishers, began to realise that there was an interesting species. It wasn't always known as the Zander then, they tended to refer to it as the Pike Perch, but it's then we began to prick our ears to find something was happening in Woburn Abbey. Away from Woburn Abbey, there were several attempts made to introduce American sport fish, black bass, into British waters without success. But one, we believe, caused the ac accidental introduction of the American pike perch, known as the walleye. In 1924, black bass eggs were imported from America and hatched in the UK. They were believed to be black bass fingerlings, were put into the River Great Ouse near Erith Bridge. Now, we, we were able to confirm that, absolutely. And nothing more was ever seen of them, that is, until March the 4th, 1934, when a Cambridge angler fishing the adjacent River Delft, which is joined to that whole system, caught a huge pike perch weighing £11.12. Fish was examined by Dr Worthington of the Zoological Laboratory at Cambridge, who decided it was a walleye aged about 10 years. So while we don't know it was one of that introduction, we can't think how else that could have been. But no other fish, other than Frank Adams, who caught the, the, the 11-12, no other fish was ever caught or recorded from that, from that particular introduction. Are we then to take it that this was just a single walleye egg mixed in amongst the black bass eggs, or is there perhaps some other reason? 
We just don't know because there were there were only a small number of tw- only twenty fingerlings were introduced, and I suppose at that stage and at that level of, of fisheries knowledge, we nobody really knew quite what the zander would or walleye would have, have looked like. So whether it was just an, an odd one that got amongst them, or whether they were all walleye and only one survived, we don't know. To have any meaningful appreciation as to why it was possible to introduce a fish such as the zander on a whim and without any measure of consultation, people also need to understand the structure and management systems operated by the various independent fishery teams at the time, such as your employer, the Great Ouse River Board. It's probably difficult with 21st century eyes to relate to the type of organisation that these old river boards were. I joined them towards the tail end of them. They, they'd only got about four or five years to go. But I think, to give a flavour of them, they were run almost like military organisations. Not surprising, really, when you think about it. Most of the people who manned them had come from the forces just after the war and had been working in fisheries since the late 40s and into the 50s and 60s. So bailiffs were given orders to do things and they followed orders. There was little question, and just a, a, a silly example, but I think it's a, it's a good one. The relief channel into which the Zander were put became the Great Ouse River Board's prime match fishery, and so it had to be match pegged. And the instruction from the fishery officer was that the match pegs would be 22 yards apart. So the bailiffs began going along the bank, putting um, match pegs in, and measuring out very accurately 22 yards. After a while they came to a bridge and it meant that one of the pegs would have been directly under the bridge in an unfishable swim. But they put a peg there because they'd been ordered to put a peg there. Whereas, a bit of common sense, you would have put one 22 yards below the bridge. I know that's a small example. They were run often by fear. They were run by quite autocratic fishery officers. They weren't all autocratic, some of them were were, were not at all, but often they were. And another example... um, is of a very good friend of mine who was a fisheries bailiff and his story was that he when he started he covered a whole area of Cambridgeshire and Bedfordshire but in fact was offered a post bailiffing the Relief Channel and other waters in the Fens. Up to then he'd been given uh, an official vehicle which was a 350 matchless motorbike but he was told when he went to the Relief Channel there'd be a house involved, a small cottage by the sides of the tidal river. The only thing was, he wasn't married. And they said that wasn't acceptable, and he was ordered to get married if he wished to take up the post. He was caught and he was sort of semi-engaged, so it wasn't quite as uh, abrupt as that. But that gives a flavour of the, the, the type of organisations they were. And he did duly get married and move into the, the house. And what about the individuals within the team at the time? The, the guy who headed the team was uh, called Norman Mackenzie. He was the fishery officer. Now, I'm not quite sure who was head bailiff or if there even was a head bailiff in those days, but the team of people that I understood um, were, were there um, just before I came were a guy called Jack Walters, ex-military guy who also kept a pub at Meeple in Cambridgeshire as well as being a water bailiff. There was... Tim Woods, another ex-military guy covering the Bedfordshire area. Didn't know Tim very well, but um, uh, he'd obviously been there at the time of the, the introduction of the Pike Perch. 
Doug Yates, uh, a Norfolk guy who has uh, run a small holding and, and made and uh, and had bees and uh, produced honey and various other things. And probably the one who's most interesting to our story is Cliff Courtwell. Now Cliff was a, a Sheffielder who'd uh, come down to live in East Anglia and in fact a very keen angler and he was the man who eventually uh, was, was very much at central of the introduction of the Xander. The only other person who I think may have acted as head bailiff was a guy called Carl Smith from Huntingdon. Now, C- Carl Smith's interesting because Carl was the head bailiff. In fact, he was, he'd become the deputy fisher officer by the time I started. And Carl operated out of Huntingdon. He was a very committed guy. He was also a great friend of Maurice Corsman, who had, was one of the members who had framed the 1923 Salmon and Freshwater Fisheries Act and was also the board chairman, the Great Ouse River Board Fisheries Chairman. So it's from these people I got quite a lot of information about what actually happened. I mean, it was very authoritative. They weren't terribly happy, I believe, about the introduction of the Xander either. But um, perhaps I now need to go on to explain what actually happened as the fish moved from Woburn into the open river system. Now, these records are, I believe, accurate. I don't have, and we couldn't find, any written evidence. And it's a mark of the boards at that time that that would have been exactly what I would have expected. So, for example, when I was asked to take fish to stock a river, for example, in 1970 to stock the River Thet with roach, we picked up some of the most scabby, messy fish I'd ever seen from a little old lake. I estimated there were about 630 of these fish or something like that. My orders, and orders it was, were to take them to Thetford, put them in the river Thet in front of the club, to wade out into the middle of the river so they couldn't see exactly what I was doing, and to tell them there were 987 fish. You never said an exact thousand, and that and no record would be kept. I know in today's eyes that sounds awful, but it was the way things were. So it doesn't surprise me no written records were kept to the Zander. But this is what I've gleaned talking to Carl, to Maurice Corsman, but most especially to Cliff Courtwell. In November 1947, about 50 Zander, from Finglands to Four Pounders, were netted from the lakes at Woburn Park and transferred to Furbanks Pit near Leighton Buzzard. Fish seem to have thrived in this water, and fish of up to seven pounds were found dead at the pit. But to say that became a dead end is, uh, is, is absolutely so, because in 1953, the pit was filled with rubbish and all the fish perished. So that was a, a dead end from the fish from Woburn. At about the same time, some Zander were put into the River Oozel and a local canal which connected with the Grand Union Canal near Trink. Now that potentially had, um, well, it had great potential for the fish to spread into an open water system, particularly as the, the oozel connects with the main river ooze. But nothing was ever heard of those fish again. And with absolutely no records of any fish being caught in the upper ooze. Actually that so just ahead of the actual introduction of the Zander, that was pretty important. In fifty one, another batch of Zander were netted from Woburn and put into the middle lake at Claydon Park, where they thrived and fish to eight pounds were taken and the fish were still being caught from that lake 
at Claydon Park, um, certainly to my knowledge in the late 60s and early 70s. But again, none of this leads us to the relief channel. The Kent River Board also imported zander eggs, but they f- uh, this introduction failed when they didn't hatch. But the second introduction by the Groters River Board did succeed, and this isn't the fish going to the relief channel. Um, 500 fingerling zander, about two inches long, were flown into London from Sweden and taken to one of the board's stock ponds at Meeple in Cambridgeshire. That was the 19th of August, 1960, just before the main introduction. The water became unusable as a stock pit when the water level rose, making netting impossible there. And I know that pit well, and I fished it extensively myself. After it became, we, we, it no longer was a stock pit. Nobody caught a zander from it, as far as we know. We never netted one. We weren't able to net it. And we discovered that um, there were lots of carp in there, but no signs whatsoever of Zander until uh, a good friend of mine, Terry Kay, a Gruffin Water Bailiff, experimented, did manage to catch one of these Swedish Zander from there in 1973, as late as that. So we know they were still there, and to the best of my knowledge, still are in there. Now, although everybody assumes this was just a sort of a bit of a mad moment that the fish went in, there were attempts to introduce Zander before they actually went into the relief channel. And these were mostly organised, apart from the one by the Kent River Board, which failed, by the Great Ouse River Board under Norman Mackenzie, the fishery officer, who was obviously very keen on the Zander. And talking to him about it, I, I asked him why he thought um, such a fish should be introduced to the British system. Now, he and I didn't enjoy what you would call a warm relationship, but what he, what he said actually made sense from his point of view was that he thought they would be a great sporting fish. The old river boards were very into the belief that trout and salmon and sporting fish, in inverted commas, were uh, pretty special, whereas coarse fish, tench, bream, carp, were fairly middling. So as uh, somebody who w- was very interested in salmonids and um, and uh, game fisheries, you, you could see how his mind was working, and he believed the Zander would provide something of that sort of sporting edge to the to the rivers of East Anglia. The key movements then were that in February 1961, a number of mature Zander were netted from the lakes at Woburn under the instructions of Norman Mackenzie. They were taken to another of the board's stock ponds at Hengrave near Bury St Edmunds on the 2nd of March 1961 and they were left undisturbed to breed. Now that is the critical movement really and Hengrave stock pond was much more suitable to the Zander. I, I knew it well, it, it was quite reedy but quite coloured, relatively shallow water. It was very easy to net. Uh, we netted it often. Um, in fact, we used to have to work on it. The reason we were able to use it as a stock pond, we kept it clear of, of weeds and reeds by going in each spring, tidying it up. Essentially, apart from other small movements of fish to lakes at Husband Crawley and so on, that was about the story. Just to retract, there were fish in the lake at Meeple, which had come from Sweden. The other introductions, say to the usual, seemed to have petered out. The walleye's introduction to the old Bedford, there seemed to have just been the one fish. And there appeared to be no successful introductions at all to the open river system, none that had actually worked. That came to an end in 1963. Hengrove Lake was netted, and the fish that had been introduced two years previously from Woburn were found to have spawned successfully. 
On the 18th of March 1963, 100 Zander. Now, knowing my old colleagues at the River Board, that actually could have been anything between 110 and 90. But that's what they had written in the book, and it's very unusual for them to write anything in the book. 100 Zander, between 6 and 9 inches long, all believed to be 1 and 2 year old fish, because they were smaller by and large than the fish that had been introduced, were removed. And they were taken to the Great Ouse Flood Relief Channel at Stowe Bridge by Cliff Courtwell at 6pm on what I have called in a paper, in a scientific paper, that fateful day, because I actually believed it was a fateful day. 97 fish between 6 and 9 inches long were released to the relief channel in Norfolk by Cliff Courtwell. Thereby in itself hangs a tale. So, in fact, it had happened. 97 Zander had been introduced at Stowbridge on the Relief Channel. And I think it's important now to really think about why that had happened and what the possibilities were. First of all, whose decision? Well, it was the decision of Norman Mackenzie, the fishery officer. He ordered Cliff, and they were the words, to put the fish in. What I think is not generally known, but certainly what Cliff indicated to me, is that Cliff was not terribly happy about that because he felt that introducing them to the relief channel was introducing them to an open water system. Mackenzie's view was that it was a sealed system with big sluices at either end and the fish wouldn't migrate from there. But Cliff had bailiffed the relief channel for some years and he knew that fish would migrate from there and really, to be absolutely honest, most anglers would have known that too. So Cliff argued and said, hang on a minute, as I understand it, I wasn't there, but Cliff was a very honest man amongst uh, a group of bailiffs who were not known for <laughs> getting it absolutely right uh, in terms of um, uh, the story. Cliff, in my view, was a very honest and straight man. I believe Cliff argued and said this is wrong, but was ordered to put the fish in. In fact, I think he, he, I think he actually argued twice, but was told to do it. And in the end... There was only him there to put the fish in. So I suppose, had he been me and a bit more bolshy, we might have said we'd put him in, but never done it. But Cliff was a straight guy, and if he said he'd done something, he did it. And he did. He put the, he put the fish in. Mackenzie gave him clear instructions. He was to tell no one that this had been done. Not the fisheries committee, not anybody. And Cliff was appalled when the next day, Mackenzie appeared on national radio to say how he had introduced a new sport fish. So on the 19th of March, 1963, and bear in mind this is just immediately after the close season, the old close season, which um, is the 14th of March. I wasn't there, but I do remember the hoo-ha, but I wasn't a member of the team at that time. And talking to Cliff and other bailiffs afterwards, the hoo-ha was more than just a hoo-ha. There was a, a lot of anger about the introduction of these fish by certainly members of the fishery board. One, who I don't know well, so it's probably me unfair to me mention his name. I, I don't even know his Christian name. His name was Mr Soper. He was a member of the, the fishery board when I joined, and I believe he was fairly uncomfortable. I don't think Maurice Corsman, who was chairman, was terribly happy about it either. I can't say absolutely that was the case. Maurice Corsman was never completely direct about it, but my understanding was he was pretty uncomfortable about it. The team itself of water bailiffs, with the exception of Cliff, who had dissented, would simply have accepted it. The people I knew, Tim, 
Jack Walters, Dougie would have just simply accepted that that was the instruction and wouldn't have thought too much about it. Very few of them were what I would call real anglers and they'd come into it sort of almost like an an army posting and uh, so I don't think they would have dissented. People like Alwyn Wheeler were unhappy and felt it shouldn't, felt the fish shouldn't have been introduced. And I know people in the Institute of Fisheries Management, which was formed not long after the introduction of the Zander, people like Ron Millichamp were very unhappy and felt it was an irresponsible move. But they were in the river system. And once the genie's out of the bottle, there's not a great deal you can do about it. Cliff Courtwell and I wrote a paper about this in 1976, which is where much of this information is coming from. And we wrote it, actually, because we were pretty concerned that the fish were spreading very definitely spreading. We're talking 13 years after their introduction. And we were trying to wake up, really, some of the uh, fisheries teams to the fact that this was going on. So we wrote the paper in a sort of relatively cold scientific language, though neither of us were scientists. But I did introduce a few words like their introduction on that fateful day, and so that at last 85 years and 43 days after their original invitation, the Zander were free, and they were. What happened? Well, they went mad in the relief channel. You could catch them 30 at a time in the late 60s. Really could. Ray Webb, a great friend of mine, very good angler, who liked eating them apart from anything else, could catch them, to use his own words in the Yorkshire accent. It was just like shelling peas, lad. And it was. Small fish, but huge fish started to appear. And by the late 60s, we'd got fish up almost to double figure. Well, we had got fish into double figures. Would it be right then to say that in this instance, as presumably with others, that all of this could be done on Norman Mackenzie's orders without even the slightest hint of internal or external consultation? Yes, simple as that. I suppose I'm not really describe those boards as accurately as I might. It's very difficult, even now, having worked in government departments myself, to believe that this sort of thing could have happened like that. But they were run as little kingdoms almost with fishery officers around the country pretty well doing what they thought was right there was central government through the ministry of agriculture fisheries and food but it seemed to have little influence on them and the fisheries boards were often made up from people who were not necessarily anglers or really committed or tended to be from the game angling side of things and Although angling itself was extremely powerful, there were huge numbers of people, particularly coarse anglers, and particularly in the Fenlands, where there were huge clubs operating, not least Sheffield, but many, many others, very powerful clubs and vast numbers of anglers. The actual lobby from anglers, the actual criticism from anglers, just didn't really materialise or have any effect when it did materialise. The first real sense that in any big way that there was any real opposition to this came when uh, John Piper um, from the Angler's Mail began to write about it and I think people then woke up to the fact that something fairly dramatic was happening. I guess for the rest of the UK this was just something that was happening in a muddy old fen drain out in um, Norfolk and nobody really thought too much about it. But I think John Piper more than anybody I think in 68, 67, 68 really alerted people to what was happening. And this was done without any regard to consequences whatsoever? Yeah, I think a lot of things were in those days. I mean, now we, we live in a, 
a sort of world of health and safety and looking at consequences before we do things. But in those days, people, you know, and they just took a leap and did things. And, and I think that was common throughout the practice throughout many things, not, ju- not just simply the riverboards. To give you an example, I mean, it probably get prosecuted, but nowadays, I don't know what the, the modern systems are, but certainly by the time I left fisheries, we were operating, working with fisheries scientists, we were operating with fairly uh, safe equipment. But when I started, the old riverboards, we used to electrofish with alternating current machines, which were pretty dangerous, but also ancient direct current machines, which had you um, got uh, fallen in the river, would have killed you. Absolutely no doubt about it. And we knew that. And we did them on old bamboo sticks where we taped electrodes up. We would go over weirs with the electrodes running. We operated in a way, we, we were sort of buccaneering, almost cavalier. And we actually, all of us, and I, I think as a bailiff at the time, I have to hold my hand up and say I was no better than anybody else. Um, we, we had a, a real disregard for safety and, and consequences. Perhaps that's too strong, but, but we certainly, in today's terms, we would not have done hardly any of the things we did in those days. But in the case of the Xander introduction, there were to be very profound consequences. Well, the consequences were the reason we wrote our paper in 1976, because almost immediately, from 1963, fish began to get out of the relief channel. This is no surprise to anybody who knows anything about fen drainage. Everybody assumes they couldn't get up through the head sluice, quite right, but they were very easily able to get out of the tail sluice and migrate up the, the tidal river, as it's called, which is actually the Great Ouse itself. Um, we then, in the early 70s, obviously I was working there then and covering the Fenland area, Cliff and I began to try and work out just how these Xander were moving. By this time, Norman Mackenzie had moved to work, I think, in the Northumberland area, and the new fisher officer was a guy called Alan Fennell, a really nice guy, but again, somebody who believed that the fish really were not spreading throughout the system. Now, it's quite difficult to persuade your boss, particularly in the environment I've described, that actually they've got it wrong. So we set about trying to do it scientifically. And what we found, we believed that fish had moved southward out of the relief channel through the tail sluice into the 100 foot, some we think had got then through via the locks at Denver into the Eliouse system, which connects with the rivers Wissy, Little Ouse, Lark and Cam, and rejoining the Great Ouse via the Old West River. So we felt it was now covering that area. We thought it had gone, they had gone through the sluices at Salter's Lode and Wellmore into the River Delph and Old Bedford River, and then into the massive unlocked middle level system via the 40-foot drain. Now these are sort of fairly tenuous connections with locks, but they, you know, it isn't impossible for fish to do that. And so we began to record where these fish had appeared, and we found them in all sorts of weird places where they couldn't have got <laughs> by, by the river system. And we realised, of course, that what was happening was anglers were catching them and moving them, some of them by road. We could never prove it, but there's no other way they could have got there. But had you caught anglers transferring these fish, how could you possibly have prosecuted them for doing exactly the same as your team had itself done on the instruction of Norman Mackenzie? That's a very good point, though, because having done something which is actually illegal ourselves, it's very difficult then to prosecute somebody for doing the same. So let me give you some of the ideas of the sort of thing we found. Uh, Azander was reported from the River Neen at Milton Ferry, not far from Peterborough, in um, 69. That's had definitely gone by road. It couldn't have known the way it could have got there. Azander were killed in a pollution at Gorbold's Pit near Downham Market. Well, unless Zander can fly, 
there's no other way they could have got there. And we think also there was a pit at Maxi, again near Peterborough, where it looked, by look, trying to age the fish through scale readings and a perculum, that, that an illegal stocking had taken place in about 1973. So we were very conscious that fish were moving, and, and of course once, once they were, were far more available throughout the system. Now, in early 76, we drew a map which we, um, sorry about the rustling, which we produced and, and a table showing where the, the fish were first caught from our records. Now, these are records that we know because we saw them ourselves. So, we know fish were caught in the reef channel as early as 65 and earlier. The cut-off channel nearby, 1969. Tide lose, 28th of September, 66. 100-foot drain, 14th of September, 67, and so on. And we've got a list going right through the whole of the Fendons, um, showing the weight and when, what dates they were caught. And that's the first known capture of Azander from each of the waters. Now, that goes right through into the early 70s and covers every water connected to the Gretus system, um, going up about as far as over and into the middle of the system. Now, by that time, we were convinced fish had spread right through the system, and we produced this paper in early 1976 to alert Alan Fennell, the fishery officer, and uh, the people who we were working with to the dangers of the Zander. So eventually, the entire Fenland system became infected, for want of a better word, by the spread of the Zander, some of which, as you've said, came as a result of anglers moving the fish about themselves. But presumably, not all anglers were in favour of the species, and as the more general coarse fishing began to slide into decline, a lot of blame for the problem must have been directed towards your team. Well, that's exactly right, and in fact, I think there's not much doubt they did have a, a dramatic effect. They bred almost unbelievably effectively, uh, because I think the Fenland system was perfect for the Zander. Zander feeds in uh, muddy conditions, and <laughs> you couldn't have found a more muddy sort of system of drains and rivers than the, than the, the Fenland system. So the Zander bred terrifically, and again there's no scientific evidence, but Cliff and I tried quite hard to understand what was happening on the relief channel and if you talked to anglers like Neville Fickling, Barry Rickards, Barry is now dead but I've talked to Barry about this a lot, I remember a time when there were literally thousands of small fish in the relief channel. Quite soon after the introduction of the Zander all those stocks disappeared, just totally disappeared. The same sort of thing happened throughout the Fen system in the, the 70s. The stocks of fish, the bottom just dropped out of them. And we, we didn't really know what was happening. We were, we were netting, we were trying to understand where the fish had gone, and we would find large numbers of fish holed up under bridges at times and things like this. And I think we could never prove it scientifically, but we believed that the Zander had, had, had literally gone through the, the whole system like a dose of salt within about 12 years, 15 years. Now, there were huge outcries from anglers, Bear in mind these were waters where thousands fished every weekend, match fished, and they'd been literally taken apart. You, you, you have a job to get a bite on them, frankly. How then was this public outcry dealt with and investigated by the team at the time? One of the, the key uh, elements to the outcry was a group that formed largely, I think, as a result of the Zander depredation, which was called the Fenland Association of Anglers, led by a guy called Colin Clare. 
Um, Colin wouldn't like me to say he led it, but he was certainly the, one of the ma- major movers in it. But it included people like George Bear from Down the Market and, and, and key players who were really absolutely um, very, very angry that, that these once wonderful fisheries had become pretty well unfit. You know, nobody could catch anything. They put a lot of pressure on the fisheries committees and so on. But I think we moved from the old Greater's Riverboard system. In 1974, the old Riverboard had become part of the Water Authority. So there was a regional control, which there hadn't been before. Um, Dusty Mellow, um, I don't know his actual name, I always know him as Dusty, was running things. And he was pretty unhappy by what, what seemed to be happening with the Zander. And they were also trying to bring a more scientific viewing to the way fisheries work was carried out and it needed it frankly the old fishery officers were really rule of the thumb sort of guys so uh, in each area fishery scientists had been appointed and in in the case of the old great ooze area it was a guy called chris clee very committed uh, very able fishery scientist he took much of the um flack i think really from the the, the coarse anglers the, the bream and roach anglers and gradually as the evidence came in that these fish were spreading throughout the system started to some extent by our paper but also enormous pressure coming in from uh, anglers like the Fenland Association the Anglian Water uh, Authority as it was called, fisheries people began to get quite alarmed about the Zander and did at least then begin to do netting and surveys to see if they could find out what was happening in the fens to be honest, we didn't really know the answer. It just didn't seem to be any fish in there. So when the Great Ouse River Board was absorbed into the Anglian Water Authority, presumably the people responsible for the Zander problem would also become part of the new fishery setup. That being the case, were there any recriminations or tensions within the team at that time? That's a, a fair question. I, that's hard for me to answer because I think almost all of the team I described from the 63 stocking had disappeared, with the exception of Cliff Courtwell and Dougie Yates and myself, by about 1970. So much of that old team had moved on, for whatever reason. Norman Mackenzie had moved on. I never understood quite why, but I guess, I guess there was, uh, there was a sense that, you know, that the, the, the pressure had built, really, and he'd had to move on. Alan Fennell, who'd taken his place, however, sort of followed a similar line to Mackenzie, uh, until really the the consequences began to to be clear, so the team I worked with, in fact, um, I was by far the youngest of a team of people mostly twenty years older than me at the time I joined, and so, and so, but certainly by 1974ish, most of that original team had gone, and we, we uh, and there was there were, no, there were all new people in there. And looking back, what exactly were those consequences? Are they still as bad, or have things stabilised a little over the intervening 40-odd, maybe even 50 years? Well, I, th- I think, I think the, the next sort of bit in the story, yes, it has stabilised, but I think something, um, I think really something that needs to be um, described is that the Anglian Water Fisheries team from headquarters decided that they had to do something about the Zander. They had to try and stop them. And this really took place in... It started in 1979. The regional scientist involved was a guy called Ron Linfield. And what he, he, he was asking us to do was to try and find ways of stopping the fish moving. So we began to... Th- this is Chris Clee, myself, Cliff Courtwell, 
onto the other values. We began to look at ways of, for example, we thought about disinfecting locks. So the lock system at Standground joining with the knee. We thought if we were to put in chlorine, we thought we might chlorinate some of the locks. And again, on some of the upper ooze locks to stop the fish moving, we felt if we could put a barrier there and this chlorine would be pumped in. But already the fish were into the neen, already the fish were being moved by anglers, and so it began to be a, a bit of a, almost an impossible job, really. And then Ron came up with the idea, Ron Linfield, that is, of a Xander cull. And the aim was that we would go out and net Xander or one thing or another and kill them as fast as we could. We couldn't catch them. And they're really hard to catch. The, the, the best way of catching them was anglers who were catching them. Because, I mean, they're fishing live baits. There were very few fish in the, the water. It was actually pretty easy to catch sander and pike at that time in the fens. In fact, the upsurge in big pike in the early 70s throughout the fens, at the time, we put down to it just being superb. I suspect one of the facts was that the sander had eaten many of the prey fish, and so the fish were actually easier to catch because they were hungry. Were anglers willing participants in this proposed coal? Well, that's a story in itself. Um, so, anglers were really against this. They didn't want to see the Xander cold, and particularly the Pike Anglers Club and people like that. And, and you can understand that, because for, actually for them, they quite like catching the Xander. And some of these were huge fish by this time, catching double-figure fish, 15-pound fish. Bill Chillings was 15-and-a-bit-pound fish. You know, very big fish. Anyway... A big meeting was held at March in Cambridgeshire where Ron Linfield came to address anglers and ask them uh, and tell them what the position was. I think just about every pike fisher of note was there. I was also there on the platform with Ron and Cliff Courtwell. It was a fairly heated meeting. They didn't particularly take to Ron Linfield who told them that they had to do this and anglers are not very good at being told they had to do stuff. Ron was right, it needs something, something had to be done. But it, the, the real key thing was to find a practical way of trying to make it happen. I think it'd be fair to say Cliff and I made the suggestion, and Chris Clee, the fishery scientist, found the mechanism for which we could do this. And we got anglers to agree to cull and report culled fish to us over a period throughout the 1980-1981 season. I have all the records of those, and I can, I can say absolutely that thousands of Xander, and in fact pike, were killed because... One of the, the, the requirements was from Ron that we kill both Xander and Pike, in other words, to reduce the predatory biomass dramatically. Now, most anglers were pretty unhappy about killing the Pike. I kept accurate records, still have them, of the fish that were culled. My belief is that some were not culled, but were, we were, were reported as culled, and, and I think that's a practical and reasonable understanding between me and many anglers. But for all that, I believe a large number of Xander, many thousand, were killed in that period. The key thing was, of course, that we hoped then that the fisheries would recover. In fact, I don't think it made hardly any difference at all, even though it was a massive cull by any standards, over nearly 300 miles of water, of rivers. And... What I believe has happened since, and I have to rely on others more than myself now, because I have not fished as enthusiastically for pike or zander uh, personally, and I moved out of fisheries work myself in the early 1980s, so my connection was not as tight as it was previously. But it does seem as if the fens have 
come back into some sort of balance naturally over time. That's speculation. I can't say that that's... I can't prove that, but that does... It does have that feel. Um, the Xander are a lot less in numbers than they were. I do know that, having done a bit of fishing for them myself. But I think I can only really accurately speak until about 83, 84, 85, when I moved out of fisheries work. At that stage, the fisheries were still in a pretty dire condition. 25 years later, I believe they have recovered to some extent. But presumably, with an alien species in there, and the species of fish that seem to be popping up everywhere from the Trent to the Severn and throughout the country now, uh, there is a different balance to so the balance that there was in 1960 before, before the Zander were introduced. But I don't have access to any fisheries information to, to give any sort of uh, worthwhile information about that. The call must have been seen by many course anglers at the time as a complete back somersault on the part of the Water Authority, even though to some extent it inherited rather than was responsible for the situation. What would the people from the original team, and in particular Norman Mackenzie, have made of all this? Well, of course, Mackenzie had gone by then, and I think it's fair to say that I don't totally know what Alan Fennels thought about it. We were good friends, but he never shared that with me, and I think there, there was a, a sense that they had been pushed aside to some extent by a new wave of people, which included fisheries scientists, the Fenland Association of Anglers, and maybe even people like me. And I hope he didn't feel that, but I think that was so. Uh, Mackenzie, I did manage to talk to him about this in the mid-80s. I can only say that our conversation was not pleasant. He was quite emphatic about what he thought about me and the people who had done things to, with the Zander Cole. I think I'd perhaps prefer to leave it at that. But it must have felt like a bit of a slap in the face for him. Well, I, I mean, yes, and, and really rightly so. And I don't want to cast myself as on the side of the people who... Um, I don't want to cast Mackenzie in the role of baddie and me in the, in, in the sense of goody. What I've tried to do is tell it as it is. I think Norman Mackenzie probably wanted to introduce the fish because he did have this sort of sense that sport fish were what were needed. I think there was a personal egotism in there as well. I think he would probably have said something similar about me, about sort of grubbing around in muddy ponds as a course angler, and, you know, so I, 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 what I'm trying to do is be balanced. I think what was done was a mistake. I think it was the wrong thing to do. But once it had been done, in a case, it, it's, it's like if you have a problem, you can deal with a problem. But this was a dilemma once they'd gone in, and you, all you can ever do is manage a dilemma. You can't actually put it right, and we never could. So now, almost 50 years on, and with a much better balance having come about between prey and predators, could that not be argued as some sort of vindication for what Norman Mackenzie instigated? Well, Mackenzie will be in wherever he is. He's dead. I don't know. be most interested to know what, he, what he's thinking. Was it a vindication, 50 years on, that things have come back into a balance? Well, it is very different now to the way things were in 63, never mind 50, when these old fishery teams we're talking about. And what we have now is a series of fisheries up and down the country, commercial fisheries, where fish of all sorts are introduced, weird and wonderful species. We've got angling changed almost unrecognisably from what it was in the 60s. And we have the fens apparently 
and, and many of the other rivers in a balance with the Zander in and introduced. So you could actually see Mackenzie as a bit of a, a prophet, somebody who, who was looking ahead in a way that at the time we weren't. So maybe we were the Luddites who were trying to, to close the door. However, I still believe to introduce predatory fish of this nature to an open water system is extremely risky. I suppose if I was omnipotent and could change things, I would go back to that day in March 63 and I would ask Cliff not to have introduced the fish. But the fact that it has happened and what has happened since with these fish being now highly regarded in many river systems, I'm sure Mac must look sometimes and think, told you so. I'll take it then from those comments that you personally don't see him as a prophet. I think it was a mistake. But looking at it in today's terms, with the introduction of fish, particularly carp, in a massive way that was completely unknown, even as late as the 80s, early 80s, actually maybe he was ahead of his time. I don't know. Speaking of Norman Mackenzie being ahead of his time, can we now project on a little way into the future and maybe speculate about any further consequences not only for the fens but for other as yet uninfected waters and on the basis of what has already and may yet ultimately happen, can I ask, is there any regret? Well, funnily enough now, I don't feel any personally. I don't know about Cliff. Cliff was quite regretful about it. Uh, he died seven or eight years ago and he did feel awkward about it I know he felt that he personally was responsible for it and he was a good man Cliff in every way a decent man and so he would feel responsible for doing something which he felt had actually had a dramatic effect on the fisheries which he loved really much so I think Cliff went to his grave with regrets I think however with the way things are panning out he would probably feel a little more comfortable about things with the fish becoming established throughout the country I don't think either of us could have predicted the way uh, things would have turned out and I, I'm very cheery about doing so now I think actually we're, we're left with the way it is really now they will appear in other places from time to time no doubt but the main um, the story has, has happened and it's gone through and they seem to be just about everywhere in your opinion will they eventually go nationwide well, they seem to be pretty well everywhere I've, I've heard of, wherever um, they can get by any sort of connection at all, they seem to get, and where they can't, they seem to travel by road. So one assumes that, um, that they're going to be appearing just about everywhere. Talking to anglers as well these days, they feel quite free to be able to move fish. Now, I know that's a great cause of concern for the Environment Agency, and rightly so, but how can you criticise anglers? for doing what the Great Hoods River Board did in 1963, doing it themselves. What then, if that ultimately does become the case, can you offer in the way of advice for managing fish stocks in the future? Or do you simply leave things to find their own balance over time, as in the case of the fens? Well, you, you come to personal philosophies of fishery management here, in which we may well argue, I'm sure we will, and if I say what I say, people will um, disagree with me. One of the things about the old rule of thumb fisheries that I knew on the Great Hoods River Board, with all its faults, and it had many, was this. That if a river appeared to be short of fish, for whatever reason, some natural river, some up and down, natural cyclical thing, we would go off to somewhere like Grafham, net some big bream roach or whatever. Not always scabby, by the way, 
often quite nice fish, and put them in. Later on we began, became more scientific and did vast amounts of fishery surveys and so on. Neither seems to have worked terribly well. That The fishery survey approach, which finds information but doesn't actually necessarily intervene, doesn't seem to have worked too well. The old fisheries boards, bunging fish in haphazardly, doesn't seem to have worked too well. So I suppose I'm now at a view that we should let nature take its course in many ways. And I'm, I know within the Environment Agency since I've left, uh, fish farms have become um, really quite important to stocking of things like barbel and many other fish. I don't think they do any great harm, but I wonder sometimes if we might, might be just as well leaving things to their own devices. In terms of fish farming, and having been involved in farm coarse fish production myself, which I know goes out of its way to ensure that the fish it produces are as healthy and disease-free as they could possibly be, which isn't necessarily going to be the case when anglers start moving them around, would it not then be better for the Environment Agency to bite the bullet and introduce healthy zander and other species to all waters in the UK to prevent the potential spread of disease? I think that's a very sensible suggestion. I think it's a practical and... And, and the way things should work. But what, I suppose what I'm saying is, as an angler, it's lovely to be able to go and fish for these big barbels, which I know will stock because I help stock them. It's wonderful, absolutely superb. But in the big scale of things, I just wonder sometimes if we wouldn't be better letting nature take its course. But anglers won't allow that, will they? No, because anglers demand better sport, and that's why the commercials have succeeded so well. And I go and fish them, just like everybody else does, not to catch the carp. I go and fish them to fish the perps that nobody seems to care about that are occurring naturally in there. And for me, it's wonderful to have a, a predatory fish, having fish stopped for it, <laughs> which means it grows big in commercials. So perhaps I'm a, I am a bit of a Luddite in that sense. But I suppose actually on balance, thinking about it, um, I suppose your proposition is, is, is probably the right one because it takes a middle road between the old haphazard stocking of fish, which probably weren't very healthy quite often, the scientists' survey after survey after survey, which doesn't always show very much and often damages quite a lot of fish in the process. So maybe, maybe, yeah, and I, I could certainly go with this, the idea that stockings would be done properly with non-diseased fish and in a way that was targeted to areas where it, it was most needed seems to actually be the most practical way forward. Well, if that doesn't put the record straight, then I'm sure I don't know what will. A fascinating insight into another time and its past-forward consequences, not only for the present, but also, maybe, for the future as well. My thanks, then, to John McAngus for filling in the details for us, and to Peter Frost for providing the early Warburn information too. 